0: You're listening to the Bible Teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at RealityStockton.com
1: In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinus was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I didn't practice the name in English. (laughs) I got the Spanish part down, so. All right. Um, San Lucas, capítulo 2, versículos 1 a 7. Nacimiento de Jesús. Aconteció en aquellos días que se promulgó un edicto de parte de Augustus César que todo el mundo fuese empadronado. Este primer censo se hizo siendo Sirineo gobernador de Siria e iban todos para ser empadronados, cada uno a su ciudad. Y José subió a Galilea de la ciudad de Nazaret a Judea a la ciudad de David que se llama Belén por cuanto era la casa y familia de David para ser empadronado con María su mujer desposada con él la cual estaba encinta y aconteció que estando ellos ahí se cumplió los días de su alumbramiento y dio a luz a su hijo primogénito y lo envolvió en pañales y lo acostó en un pesebre porque no había lugar para ellos en el mesón that was much esta es la palabra del Señor this is the word of God All right,
0: I don't believe in God, but I miss him. I don't believe in God, but I miss him. This is how an agnostic novelist named Julian Barnes opened his piece for the New York Times. What he was commenting on was how really there's this void in the soul that has been created in uh, our culture by shifts, modern shifts that have occurred recently, particularly in the 21st century. Century. Even non-believing masses today miss God. They feel this sort of lack in their lives. And what Barnes says is: as belief in Christianity and the presence of Christian witness in the West seems to be decreasing, he notes that a new religion has arisen to take its place. And what he calls this new religion is the secular modern heaven of self-fulfillment. The secular modern heaven of self-fulfillment. And what he describes is it's the development of things like uh, personal relationships that define us, the job, uh, that sexual expression, the the next opportunity, the success, the stuff. We consume, we accumulate, we fill, we fill, we fill. The secular modern heaven of self-fulfillment. But the question for us today is why? Why this insatiable appetite for more? Why this drive to continue to fill, to fill? And this is not just something that's for those outside of the church. We feel that temptation as well. We feel that drive in our lives. Why, why, that, why that, that impulse to fill and that appetite and drive for self-fulfillment? In the Old Testament, the writer of Ecclesiastes, he says this, speaking of God, that he has made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has set eternity in your heart. God has set eternity in your heart. The capacity for the eternal resides in you. No matter who you are and where you're from or your religious background or how well you're doing in this whole Christianity thing, the capacity for eternal resides in you by design. Yet we in ourselves are unable to fathom why. We scratch our heads as to why there is this huge appetite to fill our lives. And so year after year, we're trying, we find ourselves in this place of trying to fill it with more and more and more. And Christmas is probably the time where it is highlighted most and best for us. A little more shopping, a few more events, a little, more, a little bit more busyness, a little bit more stuff, a little bit or a lot more food, and just more and more and more. Fleming Rutledge, she put it this way, these, these longings are powerful and can easily deceive us into grasping for a new toy, new car, new house. New spouse to fill up the empty spaces where unconditional love belongs. Our longings are powerful. Our needs are bottomless. Our cravings insatiable. You know what we discover is the more that we grasp for these things, the more these things end up revealing that we are empty inside. The more we grasp, the emptier we fill. The more that we fill our schedules, the more lonely the world feels. It's this vicious cycle. And the cycle continues and continues. We consume, and it only serves to exploit this void that exists in our soul. What I want to mention this morning is Advent calls us into something else, okay? That is our human experience, but Advent is calling us into something else. This is why I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we need to really... uh, separate advent from christmas season they, they correspond and as you can tell there's a lot of overlap but at the same time we can't see them as the same thing they are not one and the same because advent calls us into something else something that breaks apart this old worn out pattern that continues to give us the same empty results year after year what Advent does is it invites us to move beyond the shadow of the holiday season with all of its broken, empty promises into the true substance that is found in Jesus Christ, the only one that can, that can occupy the empty spaces where unconditional love belongs. The theme of our Advent this year, as we've mentioned, is Joy to the World. It's based on the, the famous Isaac Watts song. You'll probably hear it in coffee shops and Target and your last-minute shopping. You'll hear it everywhere. But we're slowing down to really listen to these words and really just kind of work through the first verse. And this morning, as we're looking at how to experience joy this Advent, we come to this sort of perplexing third line. Let every heart prepare him room. I wonder how many of us, when we hear that line this this year, we will actually slow to think about what that means. Let every heart prepare him room. And that's what we're going to do this morning. My hope and my prayer is that we discover together today that preparing to experience Christmas joy is not about filling our lives with more stuff. It's just not about filling our lives with more stuff, but rather making space for something greater. That's my point this morning. Not filling more stuff, but making space for something greater. Let's dive into this, this story. Verse, verses one through three. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first generation when Quirinius, Quirinius the governor uh, was governor of Syria and all went to be registered each to his own town so here's what luke is doing luke our narrator is grounding this story in its historic context the nativity scene that we may also be uh, all be so familiar with does not occur in a serene mild calm peaceful, patiently waiting world. The nativity scene is occurring within the calamity of a fierce superpower. See, the backdrop of this sweet little Christmas story is the power and the pomp of of the Roman Empire that is steaming along in its quest to conquer and to claim the known world, gobbling up everything that stands in its path, devouring. And so, Caesar sends out this administrative decree that goes out to the whole known Roman world. Caesar wants to be reminded just what is his. What do we own? Let's consolidate our power. Let's be reminded of how much victory we have seen in just one generation. And so the administrative decree goes out. Verses four through six. And Joseph went up to Galilee from the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. So we are, we are transitioning out of the Braxton Hicks little part of this uh, process, and it is go time, okay? We don't know exactly the details. Maybe it's just like her contractions came closer together, her water broke. We don't know, but it was like the time, it was go time. You see, little did, did Caesar and Corinius know that the sovereign God of all that was and all that is was at work. And what God was doing was leveraging this decree that Caesar sent out in order to move forward his divine plan. I love how this all corresponds because hundreds of years earlier, before Caesar was even a thought, before Caesar was even a thought in anyone's mind, God spoke through the prophet Micah. And the prophecy was about this king that would come, and this king that would rule in Israel, and he would shepherd God's people in majesty. The question is, where would this king come from? Where would we find this king? Well, Thank you for asking. Micah 5 tells us this. But you, remember, hundreds of years before Jesus' birth, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, we're too little, to be, uh, to be, uh, too little to be among the clans of Judah. Too insignificant to even be mentioned among the clans of Israel. For you shall come forth from, you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Bethlehem, get ready. Something important is going to come from you. But it's going to be some time. But here's the irony of this scene. And the irony here is beautiful because the ruler of the world, so he thinks, is busy reigning over his empire and expanding his territories. And without Caesar even having a clue, the true king of the world is now being born in a little insignificant town on the fringes of the empire right under his nose in the most unassuming place just as God had decreed. Caesar decrees it? No. God first decreed it. Through human means. Here in Bethlehem. Now, we come to this, uh, we come to this story, and we may have these pictures in our minds of this scene that, where Jesus was born. Okay, we, we've seen the nativity scene. We've drive, driven past the Spanos compound out there. We, we, we all know what it looks like, right? And so we have these ideas of what, of what this nativity is like. And there's pictures that represent all of, all of creation kind of gathering around. There's people like bending into, you know, even cows are looking in and smiling at this scene here. What we know is eventually heaven and nature will sing. But here's the point. On this night, and, ca- and catch this. On this night, no one cared. No one cared. No royal procession, no news media coverage, no royal birth announcement. The world is not hanging in the balance, waiting to hear about this child. No one gives a rip. In fact, probably one of the saddest lines in the entire Christmas narrative, it's found here in verse 7. Look at me, verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. There wasn't even a place for them. Jesus would be welcomed into this world by a teenage virgin mother to a temporarily homeless adoptive father into loneliness and into isolation and into ultimate rejection. As it's been said before, this isn't the kind of scene that you would find under the Christmas tree. This is the kind of scene that you would find under the bridge. Okay? So when you're picturing the nativity scene, don't place it on the brick walk in Lincoln Center with all the lights and the music. Place it under the crosstown, next to a burning heap of garbage to keep people warm. You'd be swaddled in birthing cloths, not the fine material of royal robes. He'd be placed in an animal's feeding trough, not a throne. No trumpets are sounding on this silent night. The only shouts that we hear are from Mary, agonizing in birth, as she delivers this deliverer. So quite the welcome that Jesus receives here, isn't it? Quite the welcome for this long-awaited arrival that supposedly all of creation and all of humanity has been longing for and waiting for. We look at it in a lot of ways. It seems very unfit. We see these details and we think to ourselves, "This is not a fitting place for the King of the World to be born." And you're right; it's not. But at the same time, it is actually a fitting place for the King of the World to be born, because we look at the set of circumstances and it seems it only seems to fit the pattern. That we would see throughout the rest of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. The fact that he would be turned away by his own people. The fact that when it mattered most, no one would be there for him. The shame, the embarrassment, even the rejection that Jesus would face at the cross. What we see here in Luke 2 is actually a glimpse into the gospel. Luke is giving us a very early glimpse into the gospel of Jesus Christ that Jesus would be turned away, that Jesus would be rejected. Here by the innkeeper, but later by everyone, including his heavenly father. The question is why? Why would Jesus face rejection in this world? Why would he face rejection even this early? This is key. This is key for us understanding this gospel. It's because Jesus would be rejected so that we could be accepted. As we hear this door slamming in their face... We can almost picture the scene. As we hear this door slamming in their face, what we need to remember is it's the beginning of the door of hope being opened to us. The door was closed for Jesus that day so that the door of heaven would be opened wide for you and me. Christ rejected so that you and I could be accepted. See, Jesus, the true king, didn't come to earth to be honored and lifted up. He was not looking for the royal procession. He wasn't looking for the royal robes. There's no disappointment from Jesus because he's not greeted with this grand entrance. Jesus came willingly to sacrifice. Jesus came willingly to suffer. Jesus came willingly even eventually to die in our place. Why? Because only a suffering servant could save us from ourselves. Only a suffering servant could save us from our sin, from death, even hell itself. See, this is the way that it would have to be. And as we look at the story, we remember it in light of the gospel, we begin to see this very remarkable contrast. Because as Caesar is grasping for power at this very moment from his, his throne in Rome, the Bible tells us in Philippians 2 that at this very moment, Jesus is refusing to cling to power. Think about this. At the very moment that Caesar is grasping, desperately grasping for what is his. Jesus is letting it go. Philippians gives us commentary on this. Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So think about this contrast. Caesar is devouring gobbling up everything he can, and Jesus is emptying himself. Two very different kings, isn't it? Jesus is emptying himself. What the Christmas story reminds us of is that Jesus didn't come to take from you. You may be here this morning and your guards are out because you think Jesus came to this earth to take from you. But what that would assume is that you had something of your your own in the first place. That something was first yours. Or that somehow you had something to contribute in this equation of salvation. No, Jesus emptied himself and came to give himself to you and for you. Clearly, Jesus is not coming demanding to take. Jesus is coming coming to give, and it is seen even from the first moments of his life. Christ came to give himself to you and for you. In fact, he would say this probably most explicitly later on as we, uh, as we turn to uh, John chapter 10. He tells the disciples this. I forgot to mark it. John 10. You guys should have been turning there, too. Come on. The thief comes only to steal and kill, destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Caesar came to steal, to kill, and destroy. I have come to give life and life abundantly. This is a picture of grace. Only grace, that that gift of unmerited favor, can give you true, lasting joy. What we need to remember this Advent season is that Christ came into our world and into our lives to fill our lives with the abundance of His grace, to satisfy the longing of our souls to offer to us the security that we crave, to give us that identity that we are desperately trying to create for ourselves, to give us that pleasure that we are all pursuing. Jesus provides and Jesus blesses and on and on and on. This is who Jesus is. This is why Jesus came. But there was no place for him in the end. There was no such room for abundance. Isn't that interesting? Christ came to give abundance, but there was no room. The question that we really need to ponder this morning is will he find a place in our life? Will he find a place in your life? He came to give himself. What is our fitting response? That every heart prepare him room. Remember, Advent is a season of preparation. It's not just sentimental, it requires us to work. And there's preparation that is demanded of us. Walter Brigham had put it but this way Advent is not the kind of preparation that involves shopping and parties and cards, the kind of preparation that we're engaged in right now. Such illusions of abundance disguise the true cravings of every weary soul. Advent is preparation for the demands of newness that will break the tired patterns of fear in our lives. Something new is coming. Are you prepared for it? Abundance is breaking into those tired, dead, old patterns of your life. Are you prepared to receive it? How do we prepare him room? Well, first, prepare to be intruded upon. First, prepare to be intruded upon. Commentators note that the Gospel of Luke, it specifically characterizes Jesus' life as this prolonged visitation. When Jesus comes, he didn't come to, to drop in and then leave. Jesus came to reside. This prolonged visitation. We see this throughout the book of Luke. We see this particularly in the story of Zacchaeus. Now, probably your kids remember the story a little bit better than you because there's a song that goes along with it. But I won't bore you with it. But word has it, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. And so he hears that Jesus is coming to his town. And so he goes out to see this Jesus. But because of his size and stature, he can't see over the crowd. So he climbs up into a tree, perhaps a sycamore. And as he's up there, Luke records this. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, I love this, Zacchaeus, pause, he knows your name. Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, I like, get your butt down here, for I must stay at your house today. I'm coming over, uninvited and unannounced, I'm coming over and so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. I love that. He receives him joyfully. Now, normally, when people just show up at our house, we don't equate that with joyful. <laughs> we, we account, we, we, that is like Christian, do- okay, okay, Christian, did do- come in. He joyfully receives him. So here's an important equation. Our joy somehow hinges on God's intrusiveness, The incarnation of Jesus highlights the fact that God is relentlessly intrusive. That God is not satisfied with this expansive distance between heaven and earth, but he has come to earth. God didn't wait for us to send the SOS. God didn't wait for us to send word for rescue and invite Him to come into our world. He steps down into our humanity. Romans tells us while we are yet hostile sinners, God comes in and drops in into enemy territory, uninvited and seemingly unannounced. And our Emmanuel, which means God with us, will not simply be satisfied to pop in for a visit. Jesus is not looking to pop in for a visit. He doesn't come to be our guest that we keep at the door and then we excuse away. When the Word of God took on flesh and blood, He came to reside among us. He came to take up residence in our lives. Christ com- comes to occupy this world. Christ comes to occupy our church and our families and our relationships and our schedules and our dreams and our hearts and our minds and our souls to occupy those spaces. To occupy those spaces that where we welcome him, and to occupy those spaces that we have told them is off-limits. To occupy the spaces of our lives where we roll out the red carpet, and to occupy those spaces where we have pulled tight the caution tape and said, not past this point. God is relentlessly intrusive. Jesus warns in, later on in the Gospels of the sudden nature of his return. Okay, so Advent is not just remembering that Christ has come. Advent is anticipating Christ's return. And it's posturing us to prepare for that return. And Jesus makes a significant promise. I am coming again. I'm coming back. I'm coming back for my people. This is the hope that we cling to this Advent season. But the question is, for us, is will we be ready? Will we be ready for his return? Will he find room in our hearts? Being ready on that day depends on our preparation today. Preparing our hearts. Preparing our hearts and our lives and our families and our church to be intruded upon by the presence of Christ. Secondly, preparing him room means prepare to decrease. Prepare to decrease. Now, me and my dad have this amazing tradition. He calls me up every few months uh, to go out to lunch uh, to one of our favorite sushi restaurants. And because this is sort of a special occasion, it's sort of an order-whatever-you-want kind of event. Now, you know the difference between going out to sushi when you're balling on a budget and when someone else is paying, there's a world of a difference. There's like a section of the menu you don't even look at. <laughs> so it's kind of one of those, like order whatever you want sort of thing. And uh, we've been doing this for years. Now both of us are kidding ourselves that we're watching our weight today. But there was a time where it was, it was uh, confession, sinfully gluttonous there. And so um, so I remember this one day, uh, we put it on the schedule for a Friday, and this Here's the thing about going out to these lunches. There is preparation that is involved to maximize this experience. You don't just show up to this event. It begins days in advance, mentally and emotionally, preparing yourself. Uh, Tuesday, uh, not Tuesday, the, the morning of, you got to wake up. Okay, so breakfast is very key in this equation. You can't skip breakfast because then your stomach is not, it hasn't been used to expanding but you can't eat too big of a breakfast because then you ruin your appetite. So it, there's a there's a science to this. So this Friday morning, I wake up and I totally forget about this lunch, and I eat my typical not so slim breakfast. And like almost every day, I get the craving for lunch too early, and I start I microwave leftovers. I don't even remember what the leftovers were. And I'm stuffing my face with these leftovers. And just as I'm about to put the last bite in my mouth, I get the phone not- notification that's reminding me leave for lunch with Dad. And I'm thinking to myself, Oh gosh. So my mind's right, like, if I just if I like go make myself throw up once, is this a problem? Is this a condition? Like. <laughs> um, what do I do like I show up do I fake it like all these different things and so I I show up I had too much pride to to mention that I had forgotten it and I remember ordering this tiny little thing and so here's the moral of the story I had filled up on the insignificant to the point where there was no room for the great and some other things in there (laughs) forget that See, truth be told, for many of us, we are filling up our soul with the trivial and the insignificant. And the stuff that really just does not matter in eternity. The stuff that holds no weight in eternity. For many of us, we have stuffed ourselves on the small to the point we have now lost our appetite for the great. In the Gospel of John, we read that when Jesus appeared on the scene... John the baptizer recognized his greatness. Pretty much everyone missed it, but John got it. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. This one's worthy. I am not even worthy to untie his sandal. We are in the presence of true greatness. But John knew what this greatness meant. John knew what what it meant to be confronted with greatness. He knew the preparation that was involved. Remember, John's calling was preparing the way. For all of us were wondering, God, what is, what's my life? What am I supposed to do? What is my calling? John knew it. Prepare the way and die. That is your calling, prepare the way. So he knew a thing about pre- preparation. And he knew what sort of preparation was required when he was confronted with such greatness and abundance. And it's seen in the short yet very profound little statement that he says that's recorded for us in John 3. He says this, he must increase, but I must decrease. What's the kind of preparation that's required? He must increase, I must decrease. How do we prepare him room? We decrease in ourselves so that we can experience the increase of Christ in our lives. What does that mean? It means we decrease in the ways of the old man and the old woman. That old, worn out, destructive, selfish pattern of life so that the life of joy and renewal of God may fill us. What does it mean? It means that we decrease in self-reliance so that the power of Christ through the Spirit may reside upon us. What does it mean? It means that we decrease in our our drive for self-fulfillment so that the abundance of Jesus Christ may satisfy the longing of our souls. We decrease in us so that we can increase in Christ. This is the heart of faith. Faith is not what we bring to God. Faith is not what we bring to the table. Faith is not standing before God and saying, look at all these wonderful things I've done with my life. Faith is coming to God with empty hands, ready to receive, decreased in ourselves so that we can experience the increase of Christ. One author said, if we come to God with empty hands, he will fill them. If we come with full hands, he finds no place to put himself. It's in our beggary, our receptivity, we find our hope. It's in our receptivity we find hope. Third and finally, prepare for unexpected guests. Now, we we look at this nativity story, and it's as if Luke, the narrator—now go with me on this for a second— Luke is sort of like the ghost of Christmas past He's welcoming us down the dusty little Palestinian roads Into this quiet little town of Bethlehem He brings us to the scene Here we are, we see Mary, we see Joseph We see the innkeeper We see them being turned away If we listen closely enough It's almost as if we can hear the words of the innkeeper saying There is no room We don't know why Maybe there really wasn't room. Maybe it was the scandal of a teenage mom giving birth in this place. Maybe it was because he knew the family of David and they didn't want to part. We don't know. But if we listen closely, we hear these words, no room in the inn. And there we are with Luke, our ghost of Christmas past. And there we stand as we see this scene. And we're thinking, if only this innkeeper knew If only only we could speak up and they could hear us, we would let them know who this person is. What is going on? Like, all of creation has been groaning for this. They've been waiting. All of history has been set up for this moment. God has been leveraging all of history and time for Christ to be born. Don't you know who this is? But even if we wanted to speak up, we wouldn't be heard. It's too late. Or is it? Well, yeah, it's in the past. What's gone is gone. What's happened has happened. And in one sense, this is absolutely true. We can't go back. We can't shake him and say, this is Jesus. We can't stop this from occurring. And in a very different sense, it is not too late. It's not too late. And here's what I mean. Jesus in Matthew 25 says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him. Then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him he will gather all the nations. And he'll separate people one from another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Sorry people on the left. Sheep on the right. Goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come. When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you? When did we see you naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and visit you? What are you talking about? And the king will answer them, truly, listen, I say to you, as you did it, To one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. As you welcomed the least of these, you welcomed me. As you cared for them, you are caring for me. Truth be told, we can't go back and, and step into the story and stop the innkeeper from turning him away. What has been done has been done. But we can still prepare him room. How? By welcoming others. How? By creating spaces of hospitality. We prepare Jesus' room when we open our lives, when we open our time, when we open our care and our support and our church and our homes and our tables and the every corner and space of our life to the least of these. Those who have been rejected, those who have been pushed off, to those we say, Come, welcome, you are home, you belong. Hebrews 13 says, Don't neglect to show hospitality, for by doing so, by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Prepare for unexpected guests. You never know who's showing up. You never know who's showing up. Let me conclude with this. We're talking about preparing him room. I want to make this extremely personal. In a letter to the church in Laodicea in uh, Revelation 3, Jesus addresses this church that through their affluence and success, they found really no reason to trust and welcome Jesus anymore. And as they continued to fill their lives with the pleasures of riches and they continued in their self reliance, somehow, some way, we don't get the details, but somehow, some way, they had pushed Jesus out of the church and out of their lives. Essentially, there was no room for Jesus in their life plan. And there was no room for Jesus in their mission statement. And so Jesus writes to them. And he speaks to them and he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, look, listen, I'm standing here. I'm knocking. I'm pounding at the door. You know that knock. You know that sound. Maybe even some of you are hearing that today. It's the knocking of Jesus that you've tried to suppress. It's the knocking of Jesus that you've tried to ignore or drowned out with the sounds of life. Jesus said, I'm knocking. And I won't stop knocking. And if anyone hears my voice, this is where it gets very personal. He goes from addressing the church to making it very personal, very personal appeal. If there is anyone who will listen to my voice, doesn't matter who you are, whether you've got a place of prominence or not, whether you're a leader in the church or not, if anyone hears me knocking on the door and opens themselves up to me in faith and repentance, I will fellowship with her. I will be there for him. I will be present. I will stoke the fire. I will occupy the spaces where unconditional love belongs. I'll come in and fellowship. How do we make this personal today? If you hear that knock, please do not turn away. Do not drown it out. Do not disregard. Receive him by faith. Open the door and prepare him room. Amen? Let me pray.